Okay, so with that, um, I think we will get started on our panel discussion. Um, and we're very fortunate to have uh, a top-notch <laughs> panel here. Um, and I want to just introduce my um, great panelists. Uh, so we have Laurie. Uh, Laurie is a partner at King and Spotting. Um, and Laurie's practice primarily focuses on uh, PTAP proceedings. That's the patent office litigation that I mentioned mostly to um, uh, try to, one party try to <laughs> cancel uh, another party's patents uh, by going through this uh, patent office proceeding. And uh, Laurie got involved with the uh, PTAP proceedings very early on because those proceedings were created by AIA um, around the 2012, and Lori mm -hmm. got involved from the, uh, the day two. Day two. <laughs> <laughs> well said. And um, um, since since then, uh, Lori has handled over 180 trials. 200 now. What? Okay, that number uh, is dated. You need to update the file. I do. So I over 200 trials. So those are instituted ones, right? Not. Um, well, some were instituted. Some weren't, so 200 proceedings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, and for those of you who are not in the field or not familiar with PTAP proceedings, that is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so we're very fortunate to have Laurie here to um, talk to us about uh, using PTAP proceeding as a foreign defendant uh, if you're a foreign company and somehow got involved uh, in, a, in some intellectual property dispute. Um, so Next, we have uh, Steve, right next right. to me. So Steve is a partner at uh, McGuire Woods, and uh, Steve's practice it focuses on uh, Section 337 uh, litigation. So he has litigated, let me know if it's outdated as well, over uh, 55. Is that still accurate? I, I need to update my website. <laughs> it's not 180. Yeah. <laughs> well, our trials are smaller. <laughs> All right, so uh, 137 investigations. Again, that's a lot. <laughs> um, and and you do you do litigations in uh, all sorts of uh, technical areas, right? Um, mechanical, like electrical, chemical, just the, just like the judge, well said. Um, as opposed to Lori has a strong, you know, uh, a stronger uh, background in yes. electrical, so your practice seems to focus on electrical and mechanical art. Yes. yes. Great. Um, Steve also do, uh, does complex commercial litigation, so trade secrets um, or even non-IP related litigations. So uh, last but not least, we have Jay. Uh, Jay is a partner with McDonald, Will, and uh, Emery. And Jay um, is another active uh, 337 practitioner. Uh, Jay worked at the ITC for 12 years um, at the Office of General Counsel, the Office of Chairman Stephen Coplin, and the Office of Unfair Import Investigations. And uh, uh, again, tell me if it's, uh, if it's outdated. Um, you have handled over 50. Also um, outdated. Okay, <laughs> so tell us the number. <laughs> Maybe close to 100. Now. Okay, okay, all right. So, so I lost homework count. for all of you. I'll see you in a while. That's right, that's right. 
<laughs> talk to our business development department. Yeah, uh, and um, Jay also maintains uh, active practicing licensing uh, negotiation um, and, uh, as part of the sec sec settlement negotiations. All right, so um, just a little bit about myself. Uh, again, I'm the uh, managing part of Bayes, um, and I, I do a little bit of everything. I, I still maintain uh, a patent prosecution practice while do a lot of uh, litigations, um, opinions, due diligence, <coughs> um, and, and the PTAP proceedings. Uh, and, and I have a PhD in electrical and computer engineering and, and a master in biomedical engineering. So <laughs> I do everything other than uh, pharmaceuticals <laughs> and the chemicals. <laughs> All right, so uh, with that, uh, we will start our panel discussion and uh, for each topic, I, I'll just plan to sort of open the floor by asking uh, a couple questions and then we're open to the audience to ask uh, more questions or, uh, or uh, give us a comment that you have. So the first topic, uh, we're gonna talk about uh, the foreign trade, especially the US-China trade, uh, which is a pretty heated topic recently. Um, and, and the ITC 337 investigation. So as, as you all know, uh, the 337 investigation uh, is named, it's basically created by the Tariff Act, uh, Section 1337, uh, and it, the purpose is to regulate trade, international trade. So it has a very close relationship uh, with international trade. And as um, there are more Chinese companies doing business in the U.S. or with the U with U.S. companies, uh, there are also more 337 investigations uh, involving Chinese respondents. Um, <coughs> uh, so we have some some statistics here up to 2017, and uh, it looks like uh, the percentage of ITC investigations uh, that involve Chinese companies are um, between 20 to 30% varying from year to year, but slightly picking up. I think the trend is going up. Um, and on the right-hand side, we're, we have two curves uh, comparing the percentage of trade uh, of to, with China um, as opposed to all worldwide and the percentage of ITC cases that involve in Chinese uh, companies as opposed to all the ITC investigations. So you see the trends are similar. Uh, they're correlated in the sense that the, the amount of trades the two countries are doing um, are picking up. And the, and the uh, percentage of uh, ITC cases that involve Chinese companies are picking up as well, um, but still, one curve is consistently above the other. That's how you know some media claims that's uh, that that uh, that's unfair <laughs> um, and does not justify the amount of trade the, co the two countries actually do together. So um, I want to start the discussion by asking Jay and Steve to comment on um, you know especially 2018. Um, the two countries have have a so-called uh, trade wall. And do you see more um, ITC cases uh, coming out of 2018 involving Chinese respondents? Uh, what, what, what's the general trend that you uh, 
observe? Why don't we start with Jay? Sure. I mean, I'm not sure how disproportionate it is. I think, in my experience, a lot of it is um, we've seen, and I go far enough back to have seen when it, a lot of them were uh, coming out of Japan, uh, when those uh, companies in Japan became uh, larger importers, more sophisticated products, um, and then you know it shifted within Asia. We would start to see more Korean uh, cases brought as that market developed. Same thing with Taiwan, and now I think it's just happening with China in bigger numbers because the market is, is maturing and developing, and we're seeing more and more products and more and more sophisticated products. So I think it's largely, a re I'm, I'm, I don't know if you agree, Steve, but I think a lot of it is just a reflection of the maturation, the development of the market. Absolutely. It's Chinese turn. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah I, I've heard of that comment too. It started, you know, from uh, Jap Japan, and then it sort of moves to the, the targets move to um, Korea, and then um, Taiwan province, and then um, mainland. So yeah. that that has been the trend. Um, and and uh, just last year, um, there are several uh, industries in China were impacted by. 337 investigations. Um, can you can you just uh, do do you know um, those industries that, that uh, were involved? In particular, I mean, I I've, I've seen a broad range of uh, products and and uh, industries impacted. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, I, I just think again as the market diversifies too within China, we're seeing a broad array of products. I mean, a lot of it was. Um, you know, the cell phone wars, the, the phone wars, right? Um, and that was true, generally speaking, but then as the Chinese cell phone manufacturers um, matured and developed, they got caught up in all the phone wars. Um, and so that was a huge component. Um, that no longer is. Now we're seeing it in all sorts of products that are uh, high-tech products coming out of uh, China. Mm -hmm. It's a much broader array of products. And not just the high tech, right? I mean, not just cell sure. phones or, you know, uh, there are very traditional uh, areas like a flooring products. I've yeah. heard of multiple mm, investigations sure. on flooring products. I, I, I had a case on railway wheels. I mean, it's cast steel wheels, uh, a very hardly contested trade secret case. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't reinvent the wheel, but they had a lot <laughs> of um, processes tied up in how the very efficient production method and, um, there were two licensees, one in Datong and one in Tonghur, and um, they had employees who were poached. And so, I mean, not a very sophisticated product, but a very sophisticated manufacturing process for that product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that that case was uh, in particular very interesting because uh, it, there there was some important uh, find not finding, but this you know law coming yeah. out of that case. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, let me just ask real quick, though. How many folks are familiar with 337 cases or the ITC? Have you? Okay. okay. Pardon? What did you say? Sure, that, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Um, so the ITC has the power to basically investigate um, uh, unfair practices in trade, and most of it is patent-based, probably at least 90%, although, as we'll talk about soon, uh, trade secret cases are a larger component, um, in part because of some of the landmark cases that have come out. Um, 
So uh, and it, it's conducted a lot like a uh, district court case in the sense that you first appear in front of an administrative law judge um, and it's basically, let's just take the example of patents, it's a patent infringement case. In front of the judge there's discovery, uh, you have experts, it's a battle of the experts over whether there's infringement or isn't, is the patent valid, is it not valid. You can put up all uh, defenses, equitable defenses that you would in district court by and large. Um, not counterclaims, but defenses. And uh, the judge renders what's called an initial determination. Um, that then gets reviewed by the full commission. Uh, there's normally six commissioners. There aren't right now, but there normally is six. Um, and they render the final decision as to whether there's infringement, whether the patent's valid, et cetera. Um, and their remedy is to issue an exclusion order. Um, and what that is, it's a very powerful injunction. Okay, it's, it's they're, they're able to basically order customs, the US Customs and Border Protection, to stop a product that's been infringing at the border, at the ports of entry. And so as you can imagine, it's a tremendous risk for an importer and a tremendous weapon for a domestic company. And you do, the one thing that the ITC has that a district court doesn't have is a requirement not only that there be an imported product, but that there be a domestic industry that in theory is being protected. So you have to have certain US economic activity, and in the case of patents, you have to actually practice your patent in, in, the, in the product that's being protected. In the case of trade secrets, you just have to show injury. Are, are there further questions? Well, go ahead. What, what, one odd thing about the ITC, or I think, it's fun if you're a complainant, it's odd if you're not, is you can sue people and not tell them. So I have a very dear friend down in Zhuhai runs a very successful business. But the first time I met him, he threw me out of his office. And he threw me out because when I went in to see him, we changed business cards, and I had some Longjing Cha, my favorite Chinese tea. We were looking out over the South China Sea, and I asked him how his business was. And he said, it's booming. And I asked him why. He said, it's that ITC thing in your hometown, Washington. I don't know what it is, but I like it. And I said, you know, typically the ITC has a different effect on Chinese <laughs> companies. How is it helping you? And he said, this Japanese company has US patents, and they've sued all of my competitors, 38 <laughs> companies. <laughs> so all their customers are buying from me because they, knew the, they know those foreign devil customs guys are going to seize the products. So they're buying from me. So I've hired 250 new employees. I've talked to the Guangdong government. I'm leasing new land. I've built dorms, I've leased new equipment, I've spent about two and a half million US dollars in R&D building up my business. So I made sure there was a clear exit to the room and I said, but you've been sued too and they will seize your products. And he hit the phone and said, get in here with that letter, that document, the complaint. I'm not, a, I've got a lot of companies, none of them is on this list. You're wrong. And I, I fought with this company before in a, one of your district courts. I spent about $13 million fighting them. And I said, that's why they didn't name you this time, because they know you will fight, unlike many Chinese companies, you will fight. So they didn't name you, but you have been sued. Get out. You foreign devil lawyers are all the same. You just want me to give you $13 million. <laughs> he had been sued. He had pretty much wasted $2.5 million um, building up his business, because the ITC has this powerful exclusion order called a general order. So you don't have to say it's just this company and this company. You say three or four companies 
and there are many others, and you can get an order saying to Customs, shut everyone in the world out. They don't even list the company in those orders. They tell Customs, if this product's coming in, stop it. So if, if you're dealing with companies who are bringing in product to the U.S., they should be looking at the ITC website. They should be looking at these complaints to know what kind of relief they're seeking. So you're saying the defendant was not informed? Correct. Oh, he was informed. There's a myth we have in America. We, lately, we have a lot of myths, but before then, we had just this one myth, which is it's published in the Federal Register, so everyone knows it. Well, no one is that bored. No one <laughs> reads the Federal Register. They don't have to. So it's published in the Federal Register, therefore you've got notice, so we're okay on that. But they still might not name the company in the Federal Register. They would no, just the name the product. Right. Just the product. Just the products. Right. So if you're not named, can you fight? You can intervene. Uh, in fact, a Beijing company did just that um, a few years ago. A company, and I think in London, had sued the ITC on their U.S. patents. And a Beijing company intervened and said, we have been sued because they're going to stop our products. That Beijing company won at the ITC, won a summary judgment before going to trial. Their business quadrupled when they won. They were cleared and they could come in. Meanwhile, all their competitors are about to be shut out. I think the latest statistic is about 30% of cases are GEOs now. Yeah. I mean, it's, way, it's way up there now. And, and that has a lot to do with China, by the way. There's, there's a, a notion in America, uh, even before this man came to the White House, <laughs> there was a notion that if there's five Chinese companies doing this, there must be 50. Okay, so you, you sort of you have this this concept of if China's involved, you probably need a general exclusion order to stop all the infringers. While I'm boring people, can I just make one more? Make <laughs> one more sense. Please. Another thing that um, you should be aware of at the ITC is they only they don't just issue exclusion orders; they issue cease and desist. And if you're ever suing at the ITC, you should always get a cease and desist. Because there's no monetary penalty if you get caught violating a customs order. So if customs seizes your goods or finds you coming in, you don't have to pay a penalty. But if you get a cease and desist order, which says you got inventory in the US or you're marketing, you can't do anything with this stuff. You've got to ship it back out. Okay. The penalties are extreme. We were, I was in Taiwan about eight years ago meeting with this woman. They had lost at the ITC. They asked us to come in to help them. And I said to her, you've got all this inventory. You'll have to ship that back out because you have a cease and desist order. She said, we're not shipping that out. She said, we, we leased warehouses because our lawyer before, the one we just fired, told us this is only at the borders. He never mentioned anything about inventory. And I said, well, you have to ship this out. You can't keep selling. You have to take it off your website. She said, you lawyers are not very good business people. Do you know what we spent to ship the product in, to rent these warehouses? We're going to keep selling. And I said, well, I can't help you. I said, and, and there are a lot of reasons why you shouldn't do that, but I'll give you one that I think will get your attention. Each day you sell, the penalty is $100,000 per day, or two times the value of the goods, whatever is greater. So it's at least $100,000 a day. So she went down the hall and she came back. She said, the boss wants to know, 100,000 Taiwan dollar or US dollar? <laughs> <laughs> they shipped the products back out. So. Uh, quick question. Yes, Could go they ahead. Just, uh, destroy all the, uh, those products and provide like certified um, letters saying they've been destroyed instead of shipping them sure. back? 
They could have. Yeah. They could have done that. They didn't want that shipping costs. Yeah. But this yeah. this particular product it was valuable enough not to, you wouldn't want to do that. So they moved it to Canada and Mexico. So. Yeah. Uh, so I have a question. So how open in the in the cases that the complainant asked for a general exclusion order, how open is it uh, finally issued? And in what industry is it mostly open issued a general exclusion order? I don't think uh, it's industry specific, well, is it, Jay? Well, I th it is in the only one set. So I, th I think the last number I saw is that there was about a 40% success rate, something like that. Um, I'd have to double check that. I was surprised at how high I thought that was. I think it's the only way that it would be industry specific is because in order to get a general exclusion order, you have to show that um, there, it's easy to enter the market. There's low barriers to entry, right? So if it's a really high-tech product that's going to cost millions of dollars, you have to build a whole new factory, et cetera, it's going to be harder to establish that it's you know, a pop-up, mom-and-pop kind of pop-up type shop. Um, so I think it's, it's the sense is it's going to be product where there's very low barriers to entry to manufacture it, that kind of a thing. Because that is one of the things you have to establish in order to get the general exclusion order. Or that infringement is widespread and you can't find all the infringers. Yeah. So well, easy to circumvent yeah. or that it's widespread. Yeah. So, so yeah. That, that's right. Just to give an example, in, in the case that we litigated, it involves large LED modular panels. So those are high tech. Those are uh, higher barrier to enter uh, type of in industry. But still, the other side that wanted a general exclusion order and the allegation at least were exactly because, you know, because you guys are Chinese companies, and if I stop you in particular, you can always move to another manufacturer and make the same products. So that's, that's the um, second reason that Jay and uh, Steve mentioned. And when we settle, for a representative few of the Chinese companies, when we settle these cases, we take a license or we whatever, we insist in every settlement agreement that the complainant continue with a general exclusion order. Because a general exclusion order can be your best friend. They're going to knock all your competitors out of the market. And, and to that point, with LEDs and like solar panels, I think to the extent that there's a policy of the Chinese government promoting that technology, that plays into the notion that there will be other who pop up. And LEDs is a great example where the Chinese government is behind uh, the development of LED technology. That wouldn't be PC. We, uh, uh, yeah. No, that we would never do that. <laughs> Just like when Samsung wins against Apple, and we cancel the order. It wasn't because it was Apple. So I guess the Although, answer would be, you know, the law isn't biased, but because of certain characteristics of, you know, the way people do business in different countries some may be more likely to be found liable under the same law, but not others. Um, and I think that's the, uh, that, that what we have seen. Seriously, uh, I think the scale of China is just something we've never seen before. I mean, it's, it's, we've never known China when it was rich. It was rich for thousands of years uh, before we came along. 
and now we've got to learn to deal with that. Um, and, and we're going to have some hiccups along the way. But the, the scale of China is just mind-boggling. Have you seen a trend where the earlier respondent, or not really responded, but in the past, the Chinese company would just ignore the, the, you know, the complaint and not bothering to mm -hmm. up, but right. now these days it would bite more and more? Is that general update? Absolutely. That's been my observation, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. One is because the government is so powerful in China and runs almost everything. When I would visit China, people would say to me, well, the government is suing us. This has nothing to do with the government. The government's not suing you. They may build the building and hire the employees, but it's a company, it's your competitor who's suing you. But they thought, well, if it's the government, why would we fight? And, you know, we are Chinese, they're Americans, why would we fight? It's rigged. But then you started seeing Chinese companies win at the ITC. Um, so I think you're, you're seeing more Chinese companies fight Mandy and I have talked about you, you're seeing more Chinese companies get patents. Last year in America, Chinese companies got more patents than anyone. So yeah, it's changing. But you know, China's returning to its station of being the most inventive place on earth. Most of the things we rely on were invented in China. It, it does come down to the revenue that the company is going to generate in the U.S. too, right? I mean, it's this, there's a certain economics, right? I mean, you're not you're going to pay your lawyer a million or more. What's what's the revenue that I'm getting out of this? And I think one of the factors too is. Certainly when we're filing for a general exclusion order, you know, a lot of the times the targets that are picked are the ones that are most likely not to fight. I mean, there's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy there because, and so you hope when you file that the big players don't intervene. As Steve said, you can come and intervene. So there's a technique, a strategy, if you will, to try to pick on the smaller players to establish the right to get the general exclusion order. So that kind of could add to the defaults, but certainly the progression has been to fighting more um, to establish that you will fight. I mean, one of the reasons to do that is to establish that you will fight. And for a while you had some fool, some American lawyer going over and telling people in China that responding to the ITC complaint was like responding to a district court. You had Hague Convention, you had months, when you've got a matter of days to respond. So some Chinese companies miss their response dates. Um, they might have fought, and maybe they wouldn't have, but you have misinformation. That's real fake news, you know, that, that is going out. So. Yeah, so I, I think it, the trend is, you know, companies are getting more sophisticated about 337 investigations. They have some basic knowledge, they know the consequences, not, not defend themselves. Um, and the second thing is, um, some cases are going really high profile, so they have to fight uh, in order to get the market share. Uh, to sustain their market share. And, and third, I, I think the, the government is still plays a role to sort of organize when multiple respondents are uh, sued. Um, the government uh, try to organize them and you know put some kind of joint defense um, among the respondents to reduce the cost. So it, it comes to a point that it makes more sense to, to actually uh, appear in the, in the fight uh, than just trying to get a free right from maybe somebody who, who wants to fight it. Yeah, the government does more than that. Yeah. <laughs> Mofcom gets a bunch Mofcom. of American lawyers into a room and it's a race to the bottom. <laughs> uh, you, get eight, you put eight American law firms in a room in Guangdong in August, no air conditioning and everyone's smoking except the <laughs> <laughs> And it's all a race to the bottom. That's, that Mofcom does a lot to drive down these fees. Yeah. But you also get what you pay for, and, and there's a saying in America, 
There's nothing so expensive as a cheap lawyer. You get what you pay for. I think that's right. I mean, it, 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 uh, and I think more, more uh, companies are recognizing that. Um, we can't easily spend days talking about <laughs> 337. <laughs> but, um, uh, and, and you're welcome to catch Steve or Jay uh, in our reception hour to talk about, uh, talk about the investigation more. But Jay um, will send you a bill. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, let's move on to the second topic uh, that we plan today. Um, that's about the PTAP proceeding. And, uh, um, and I don't know how many of you actually you know, uh, know about PTAP or how much you know about PTAP. But it's, uh, as I mentioned, it was a, you know, pr a new pr procedure um, created by AIA around 2012. Um, but in the, in the recent years, you know, some legal, interesting legal issues get escalated onto the appellate courts. And just last year, there are several interesting uh, <laughs> decisions handed down uh, in the related to PTAP proceedings. Um, including two uh, Supreme Court decisions, Ohio State and SAS Institute, and several uh, federal circuit uh, decisions impacting uh, things like uh, uh, standing to appeal, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, tribe uh, immunity, <laughs> 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 right? Um, and and um, some other interesting issues as well, like uh, whether, uh, whether you can appeal a time our uh, decision in your institution decision. Mm -hmm. So, um, if you have to pick a, you know, pick one that you think has the most practical <laughs> impact, uh, what 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 do you think be? Um, okay, so that's I'll pick two because uh, oil states was actually a Supreme Court decision deciding whether or not um, PTAP proceedings were constitutional or not. So if that would have gone the other way, I would have uh, gone back to my engineering career and tried to find a job. Um, so, so that was consequential in that it could have gotten rid of the whole uh, shebang there in one swoop and we would all have been looking for jobs. So um, I think the second most consequential is the uh, Supreme Court's decision in SAS Institute. And maybe to take a, a step back, um, how many folks have been involved or know about PTAP proceedings and what they involve? Okay, a few people. So it's the, it's the technique in the United States to um, challenge the validity of an issued United States patent and basically go to the patent office and say, listen, I think you made a mistake when you issued this patent. It's really invalid. Take a second look. And it's a inter-parties procedure, so it's um, adjudicatory rather than examinational. So it's instead of having an examiner at the patent office decide on validity, um, there's two sides fighting it out with a panel of judges making the final decision. So it was a really big kind of shift in 2012 when you went into these types of proceedings. Um, so now, um, you know, anybody uh, other than uh, the patent owner can. Uh, file one of these proceedings against a patent to try and invalidate it um, and take it really much off the field. So in 2018, uh, in addition to oil states, which had to do with the constitutionality of this um, and taking away an intellectual property right, um, SAS had to do with this uh, notion of partial institutions. So before, um, 
uh, you could file an IPR proceeding or IPR petition against, say, 20 claims and put five different reasons why the patent and those claims should be found invalid. And the patent office kind of took the position where they would go through claim by claim and decide which claims you were more likely to proceed on, win on, and uh, which grounds you were more likely to win on, and they'd carve the bad grounds out. So you'd only go to trial on the, the ones that had a reasonable likelihood of success. Um, the Supreme Court said that's, that's not how the statute should be interpreted. So it's an all or nothing institution now. So either everything is instituted or nothing is instituted. So you get, um, uh, and, and that sounds pretty basic, but it's changed the practice dramatically because anything that wasn't instituted, you didn't have this concept of estoppel. So with IPRs and PTAB comes this notion of, um, if I file one of these, it's kind of a, like a quid pro quo. If I go to the patent office to invalidate, I can't later go to the district court on anything I could have brought to the patent office to invalidate. So I had to pick my form. I've picked the patent office. If I didn't get institution on five claims, well then I could still fight those in trial and try to invalidate them. So I, I kind of had my cake and I was gonna eat it too if, if I didn't lose. But now, if the PTAB institutes everything, even stuff they think you're gonna lose on, you're stopped from everything. So it's really changed the dynamic in how you present petitions. And it's also changed the dynamic on what the PTAB does. So now they're actually taking the position, if your petition has more grounds that are gonna fail than succeed, um, they're gonna deny at institution. So even if you had one ground where you could invalidate most of the claims, the PTAB in their discretion cannot institute trial because it's not too, it's not efficient for them to do it. So you're seeing the PTAB actually, you know, kick out petitions that have some good grounds because they would have had to institute the whole thing and it wouldn't have been worth their time. So it's really been um, a big change in the practice this year. So was that then potentially causing Yeah, so that, that's a good question. And um, I think um, it, it really hasn't had that impact. I think what it's done is to make petitioners think more critically about what they put in the petition. Before, there was a lot of kitchen sink type of anything that I, you know, it's hard for attorneys and litigators to leave anything on the table. <laughs> so at the PTAB, you know, people were throwing in 20 grounds, 10 grounds. Um, and just saying, well, some will stick. And now you have to be really more critical and you know, just realize you might have to leave some of the mediocre ones you know, at the doorstep and just go on the strong ones. And that's been hard for folks to do. I think the biggest shift in, um, has been the institution rates have been kind of creeping down. And or in the early days, it was, we were over you know, between 80 and 90% institution. Um, and everybody was going to the PTAB because they were more favorable towards petitioner. And we have seen a trend um, to, an, in every art unit down, until now we're in the 60 to 70% institution rate. Uh, and, and that makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of the early patents that were getting challenged were some of those real, really bad patents that were getting asserted. <laughs> and the, the board was still trying to find its way. So I think 
60 to 70 percent is is kind of a reasonable number it's still more favorable than the district courts um, so but now companies are thinking a lot more critically about whether to bring a PTAB challenge because of the estoppels and that the institution isn't as easy so there is I think that's a more you know dramatic shift for a company in deciding to use the PTAB is the kind of those the institution rates coming down Yes, yes, if there's not an institution, you can challenge a district court. And one of the big fears a lot of people have is whether the patent owner can go and tell the jury, you know, listen, they tried to invalidate my patent at the PTAB, they failed, um, this is a great patent, look, there's a big red seal, you should, you know, give it. And, and the good thing is that if you look at the district courts, um, you know, before, before trial, and maybe Mandy could give some more color commentary on this, is. Um, there's this notion of motions in limine where, where you can tell, you know, that you fight over what you can tell the jury. And most judges won't let um, one side tell the jury that uh, institution was denied. So, um, Except the Eastern District of Texas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think no we need question. to carve EDTX from, from it. But um, yeah, so uh, you can still challenge uh, on the same art. Um, you know, it's. You know, it's, it's probably harder to go with the same art because the other side knows how to challenge it successfully because they've already done it. Um, but you're not a stopped. So the good news is if you don't get institution, you can challenge again. And most likely they won't be able to kind of taint the jury with your failure at the PTAB. Right. So um, an another piece of uh, interesting uh, question <coughs> about PTAB is the timing you uh, file a petition, try to challenge a patent. Um, we, we see uh, more Chinese companies uh, try to use PTAB proceedings as a shield uh, because typically, you know, uh, filing a PTAB proceeding is less uh, expensive than filing a, a litigation. But then um, they always face with the question, when exactly should I file my petition there are a few time points that uh, you know that trigger that thinking. Um, one is uh, when when companies do their freedom to operate FTO uh, diligence, they found they, they they will find uh, relevant uh, patents that that they may not be able to design around. So, uh, but they they might find invalidity grounds. Um, so do they wait or do, should they challenge right away because they already have knowledge about it? Um, second time point is when uh, you know companies get notice letters, uh, notice or season notice letters from their from patent owners, and now you obviously know about the patent. And if you had down analysis um, uh, of invalidity, do you want to challenge it right there, or you wait until? Uh, the patent owner actually bring, brings a lawsuit. Um, and then once a lawsuit is brought, <laughs> obviously there are time, cons you know, time bar that you have to keep in mind uh, that you, you need, definitely need to file your uh, petition before. So if you Laura can talk about those timing yeah, issues. Sure. <laughs> it's, a, it's an incredibly broad question, yes. but. Um, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll hit the high points and if folks have questions, we can dig in. 
Um, so on the freedom to operate issue, it's actually an interesting question, right? So um, kind of your instinct is let's remove that patent from the field. And the thing about PTAB challenges is you can't do them anonymously. So as soon as you file that, the person who owns that patent is going to know you're worried about it for some reason. And that may preemptively cause them to look at you and file a litigation against it. The other thing is something that Mandy kind of mentioned as she was introducing this topic is standing to appeal. Um, the interesting thing with PTAB proceedings is uh, anybody except the patent owner can file them, but not everybody can appeal to the federal circuit. To appeal um, a decision, you have to have what we call Article Three standing. So you have to have some type of injury. So what we're seeing, um, particularly in um, some um, cases involving um, you know, companies who haven't been sued that have uh, kind of filed IPRs in advance of being sued, if they can't show they have an injury in fact, they're not uh, permitted to appeal to the federal circuit. So we've had some appeals uh, kind of dismissed because of lack of Article Three standing. So it could be that you go to the patent office, you're not successful, you want to appeal, and you don't really have that avenue because you, you didn't have an injury yet. So those are a couple things to think about at that stage of, of the game. Now, when you get the letter, things, now, now you've, you've most likely jumped over that Article Three appeal hurdle. Um, then it becomes, at what time do you do it? And some of it has to do with, um, you know, if there's a viable settlement in the mix, right? Um, P one thing that PTAB proceedings are really good at is as a leverage or a lever to force early settlement or to get you out of the case completely. And it's really effective, um, you know, like you, you, know, you were talking about these ITC cases where the patent owner is going after a lot of different companies. Well, we've seen a lot of our clients take the aggressive stance to, you know, basically put it together in IPR even before the litigation is, set up, is filed and say, unless you settle with me and let me out of this for zero dollars, um, I'm gonna file this. And if your patent's invalidated, you're not gonna be able to go after the industry, right? So let me go and I won't invalidate your patent. And that's really successful for companies or patent owners who have uh, like a, a list of targets they wanna go after. Because if you take out the patent, they're not going to be able to monetize against anyone. So um, kind of these pocket IPRs, and I think Wayne may have worked with me on a few pocket IPRs when Wayne and I used to work together at our former firm. Um, so they're very kind of successful uh, leverage tools. The other thing from a timing perspective is if you think there's no doubt you're going to get sued, um, you know, in the next three, six, nine months, it's better to get the IPR on file sooner rather than later because what you want if you're in a district court is to be able to stay that litigation before you have to spend money on things like discovery. If your fear is going an ITC case coming your way, uh, you want that IPR in, in front of that ITC case or as early as you can because it becomes a rush to the exclusion order, right? Because you want your, your patent to be invalid, that patent to be invalidated before they try to enforce that against you. So, um, so when you get a cease and desist letter, you know, you, you should immediately start to think about this. You shouldn't wait a month or two. Now, when the case is filed, um, you have a year for uh, 
a timer starts as soon as you're served and you have one year to file your IPR proceeding in the PTAB. If uh, that one year expires, you, you lose the right to challenge it. Um, from an ITC perspective and, um, you know, because of the time of the ITC, how fast it is, and there's no stays, uh, if you're going to use the PTAB in the ITC, you want to do it sooner rather than later. So very quickly in the ITC. The district court, depending on the jurisdiction, you can wait, you know, some, some companies wait up into the one-year bar date. I was involved in an ITC case between two industry competitors. Um, uh, they weren't foreign companies. There were two U.S. giants kind of fighting it out. And the PTAB was a major battleground between these, these two. Um, and the company, the, patent, uh, the, the respondent filed uh, quickly and often. <laughs> they kept filing and filing and filing and filing. Um, and, and eventually, even though the patent owner had a lot of success, um, you know, they won on some claims that helped in the fight with the exclusion order. So, um, so it can be really valuable to the ITC, uh, even though that uh, proceeding is more, you know, unrolls a little more quickly than the district court. So I know that was a lot in a little, a few minutes. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was a that was a uh, I think a great answer, touching on the most important points, and just to echo on how powerful. Uh, a PTAP proceeding could it be. I had a, a previous litigation case, um, and I represented a plaintiff who has a um, money-making licensing uh, program. <laughs> so uh, the other side filed IPRs and got instituted on some of the key patents. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, during settlement uh, negotiations, surprisingly, the other side asked the plaintiff to pay them. One billion dollars <laughs> to settle <laughs> because they said if we continue with you know these IPR proceedings, we're gonna knock out uh, some of your uh, most important patents and you will not be able to collect uh, royalties anymore. So uh, you know, yeah. in that sense, PTAP <coughs> proceedings sometimes isn't just a shield; it could be a weapon yes. as well. Yes. Yeah, I was in a battle um, between two competitors in the U.S. and. It was definitely, they weaponized the PTAB and they would file every month five new IPRs against each other um, to try to systematically, they each side categorized the most important patents in everybody's portfolio and they just every month went five, 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 five. Um, and it went on uh, for you know six, nine months of just constant filing against each other. Um, and That's how you got to 200 cases, right? Well, actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, to be honest, that helped a whole lot. Yeah, it really did. Um, but, but that kind of, um, you know, people do use that as a technique to try and say, well, you know, if you're not going to play ball, I'm going to take out all your patents in these proceedings. So. No, I, I, the courts and the administrative agencies in the U.S. don't like to agree with that, each other too much. <laughs> so I think there's numerous cases where the PTAB and the ITC and the district courts have come to different. Uh, how, how these companies among each other handle that? Yeah, so the interesting thing, sometimes the conflict is due because of um, the standards are different. So in the PTAB before last year, there was a different claim construction standard 
So, you know, you could come to, you could legitimately see how they would come to different results because the PTAB had a broader interpretation of claims than the district court. Also in the PTAB, um, the burden is lower. It's um, preponderance of the, the evidence versus clear and convincing in the district court. Um, and then the other issue is that a lot of it, because these are adjudicatory proceedings, come down to how well the party, you know, presenting the case makes the case. So in some cases, um, you know, somebody at the PTAB may have done a better job than the person at the district court, and that's actually why you have the, the different results. So, um, you know, so we kind of make a joke out, out of it, but um, you do see it happen a lot because sometimes it's a jury versus an educated panel of engineers making the decision. Uh, so the everything goes up to the federal circuit and um, for them to sort out, but a lot of times it depends on the issue being appealed and what the federal circuit can do. Are they more like the jurors or the educated engineers? But before, you know, we do see federal circuit decisions even on the same patent, the same claim, the same prior arts. Right. Uh, I mean, same grounds. Um, they come to they came to different decisions because mostly because the, you know the standards are different. Claim right. constructions could be different, but now um, the claim construction standard at the PTAB has been changed, right. um, and and now it's completely consistent with the, at least the district court uh, standard. Mm -hmm. um, do you, do you foresee that federal circuits may still come out in different? Right, and I think, it, again, it's how the issue is presented to them because, um, you know, if, if, if it comes up as a determination of whether they got, like, anticipation or certain issues, it, it's an abuse of discretion mm -hmm. standard, right? So, you know, they, they, can, they can't completely de novo review certain issues at the federal circuit, so they have to give deference in some, some areas to the tribunal below, um, whereas in claim construction, they can do de novo. Um, so I think we'll still see some uh, discrepancy um, between decisions, but more, more often than not, you don't see the two appeals coming up at the same time because the district court is generally stayed while the PTAB goes forward. So it's the PTAB case that will hit the federal circuit first. How about ITC? Uh, yeah, so the ITC, um, I'm trying to think of my ITC cases. Um, that my PTEP cases that involve the I ITC, and I think um, I'm trying to, the case the the appeals actually hit at this about the same time. Um, I know in the re-exam world, the, the federal circuit sometimes would stay the district court case and take up the PTEP or the patent office appeal first um, because that would. Ex you know, extinguish all the issues if the patent was invalid and they wouldn't have to address the damages and infringement issues. Uh, I don't know if I've seen one like that for the ITC. Do you guys, uh, have you had any cases like that? I have not, no. You know, my, 
my take on it is that your highest chance of success is still the PTAB, uh, but then I think the ITC is a better chance than most district courts. I would put my fate in the ITC to make an invalidity decision before I would a jury, by and large, depending upon the product, depending upon the patent and the nature of the patent, the nature of the technology. Um, the ITC tends to have more uh, engineers on board. Um, they, they tend to look at the things very closely. There's levels of review that you go through. Um, so it's different in nature. So I would sort of stack them that way, in my experience at least. Mm -hmm. So you're gonna Yeah, so in other words, it would be the PTAB who would, by and large, invalidate more often than the ITC and then district court. In that order, your chances of success start to go down, in my opinion, right. in that order. Right. But again, you're looking at very different standards yeah. among those, or to, between those, the PTAB and the other two. Right, right. and it's important to remember that um, as a respondent, you can actually do both in parallel. So you can be trying to invalidate at the ITC where you're invalidating at the PTAB or in district court, it's generally you know, stayed and you're putting all your kind of money behind the PTAB making the right decision. Right. And also keep in mind, uh, PTAB proceedings, your uh, grounds could be limited, uh, especially mm -hmm. if, if your only option is to file IPR, um, then you can only challenge under uh, 102.103 type, 102.103 type uh, grounds uh, based on uh, printed publications. So those are limited grounds as opposed to in district court or uh, ITC, you can use any uh, unpatentability grounds, 101 or you know one, even 112 uh, issues you can bring to, to the courts or uh, ITC. So you've got limitations when you pick and choose among the, you know, litigating similar issues among different forms, but I think you know, I think that the panelists also mentioned, you, sometimes you don't really have to pick and choose because you you can litigate them all to increase your chance. Just just uh, that kind of uh, increase your cost as well. Okay, all right. Um, oh, do we still have a question? Oh, One more question about about PTAP. Oh, so you don't have to prove monetary damage, you just have to have uh, like an injury. So, so you have to be under a threat of infringement. Um, so if you can show that, uh, I think there was a few cases last year in the federal circuit where, um, particularly between um, drug manufacturers, um, like you know, what did they have to show um, to establish that there was enough of a fear of enforcement that they could get standing. And um, one company failed because um, they couldn't tie, um, you know, their activities closely enough to actually being a threat of uh, being accused of infringement. Whereas another company um, showed that, you know, they were actually going to, they almost admitted to the fact that they were about to infringe on a patent and um, that there was some, you know, history of uh, litigation between the companies, those sort of things. So, um, you know, those are the sort of things, like if, if you're just coming out of the blue, you probably wouldn't have enough. But. Great. So again, I mean, if you're interested in PTAP issues in particular, you can always catch Lori uh, at our event or afterwards, <laughs> kind of volunteer for Lori. Um, but we're going to move on to our uh, third and last topic, um, 
the uh, trade secret issues. So um, as you can see, that the current U.S.-China trade wall, uh, a larger percent of it becomes the trade secret wall. Um, so trade secret is another uh, area of intellectual property that uh, I would say more complex compared to uh, patent issues, um, because the, you know there are state law involves and and uh, after 2016 there there was um, a uh, federal law enacted on uh, trade secret issues um, and also you uh, in terms of forums that you can use to litigate trade secret uh, cases you can uh, you typically do state courts but now you can do federal courts under that federal law um, you can you can bring cases to uh, ITC um, and and also uh, as you probably read in the news, um, trade secret um, is not limited to civil uh, actions. Um, even you know when there are just disputes between two companies, some issues could be escalating onto a criminal level. So uh, you saw those FBI investigation, DOJ actions involved. Um, so with that, can I have Jay and Steve uh, maybe have a brief introduction of you know. Um, what what how trade secrets are litigated in, in the in the U.S. Just kind of landscape um, introduction. Well, at, at the ITC, it's it's um, basically it's the same sort of determination. You have to establish that there is a trade secret. You have to establish reasonable measures to protect it. Um, you know, and then you have to establish injury. You, you go through all the steps, um, uh, and. You, but you, you only have to show injury, you don't have to show that you practice your own trade secret in the United States, you just have to show that you're injured by result of the imports that use the misappropriated trade secret. Um, one wrinkle, we were happy to see the federal law pass because that case that Mandy mentioned that we litigated back in 2009, 2010, one of the things the Federal Circuit told the ITC was they had to apply federal law when determining whether there was a uh, trade secret misappropriation, and we're looking at each other going, there is no federal law, these are state causes of action. So now come 2016, there's actually a federal law that the ITC can apply. Anything is there that? a reason why uh, there's a difference between trade secret and patent as far as whether you practice or not? There is, it was a result of the case that I won actually, where um, there was a question as to whether uh, you had to actually show that you practiced your trade secret like the patent. And we had, uh, the US company didn't practice the particular trade secret that they were using in China to manufacture with those two licensees. And, but they were clearly going to be injured by the imports of the misappropriated product. And so we argued under the statute and legislative history that that should not be a requirement. You should only have to establish that the domestic industry economically is injured as a result of the imported product. You shouldn't have to show that you also practice that particular trade secret, and we won at the Federal Circuit and established that precedent. And that's one of the reasons that we started to see more uh, trade secret cases come to the ITC. And the other aspect of that case that was unique is that, all, well, the Federal Circuit found that all of the misappropriation took place in China. In fact, the record showed that there was some in the US, but leaving that aside, they said that the ITC has jurisdiction over trade secret cases when all of the misappropriation takes place abroad. And in this case, it was in China. And so once that jurisdiction was established, that also, I think, resulted 
in more ITC trade secret cases because you don't have to have the only connection to the U.S. has to be the product that was the result of the misappropriation was imported into the United States, and that's enough. Well, they can file a patent case if they can establish a domestic industry, for yeah. example, through their licensing activities or the activity of a licensee. Or R&D. Yeah, that kind of a thing. I would imagine they wouldn't have a trade secret case that they could bring, right. probably, because they'd have to have the trade secret and they'd have to have show injury as a result of the import. And if they're an NPE, I mean, they, it's conceivable they could establish some indirect injury, I mm -hmm. guess, to their licensing prog program and their licensees. Um, but so in the patent context, now the ITC has gotten, they have clamped down, they took a lot of heat for allowing NPEs to use them and so they became more strict in their um, application of the domestic industry requirement with NPEs. They made it harder. And in fact, one of the things that going in the other direction is when it used to be that when you were using your licensing, you didn't have to establish the practice of the uh, patent and you do and so but they're able to do that through their uh, licensees um, and, and or if it's like a portfolio license that these patents were significant and then also that there, that there isn't a product that practices the uh, patent. That's another anecdote if I may. The first case we did, we, we were representing a Taiwan company. An American company had sued them. The American company had sued another company earlier in the U.S. and they won that company was practicing the patent. The American company was not practicing their own patent. And one of the ways we were able to win the ITC case for this Taiwan company in Taichung was because we said there was no domestic industry. Well, these lawyers had never done an ITC case before. They didn't understand that they could have relied on the earlier domestic, the earlier licensees domestic industry. <laughs> so those sort of subtleties are, are, and they never got sued for malpractice. Correct, yes. But it can't be sales alone. Sales yeah. won't do it. Yeah, sales and marketing won't, but but the other activities you identified would qualify. Yes, yes, correct. There still has to be a certain magnitude, not, not just the, the fact that that exists, but you have to sort of put all the numbers together in to a crunch a case yeah. of uh, domestic Substantial industry. relative yeah. to the market. That's, that's really interesting, uh, you know, questions comparing the patent uh, cases as opposed to trade secret cases um, at, at ITC. Um, do you guys have a, like a comparison between the, you know, litigating the same, nowadays you can have a choice, litigating maybe the same issue in a state court or a federal court. Do you have a, uh, based on your experience, do you have a comparison between these two choices? 
depends on, in my experience, it depends on the state and the, and the federal court. I mean, we're doing one now in Boston in federal court. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the judge there, I mean, maybe the state court is too. I've never litigated in the Massachusetts state court. But the federal judge there, very adept, very senior, but he's very with it and he knows what he's doing. He's ruling our way so far. When he starts ruling against <laughs> us, he'll be an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I think it probably depends I think on that's, that's right. It's the more geography. dependent on the on the venue than it is the law. The law right. is not so significantly different. Right, right. Yeah. Although you can get the seizures using the DTSA, right? One of the things to note in the U.S., we, we had a case um, in North Carolina a few years ago where some guys started a company there and then left North Carolina, went to Shanghai or somewhere, uh, and started doing the same thing. So we sued them for stealing our auto trade hold what used to be their trade secrets. Um, the North Carolina district attorney got involved in this. And we were sort of coordinating with them. Some of our case sort of uh, was delayed while the criminal case kept going. And I think you see more and more of that cooperation going. Um, so it's something to, to think about. Uh, and you, if your trade secrets are stolen, you can go to the, to the, uh, the prosecutors, uh, the, the government lawyers, and, and they will often will help you. Right. Or well, the other way around, be mindful about, you know, when, when you know, if, if a Chinese company trying to do a business with the U.S., um, especially when they hi hire uh, talents from U.S. companies, keep in mind about this uh, potential risk of trade secret disputes and uh, could could be well escalated to criminal level. And that's what we, we um, see in the past few months there, there, are, there are several cases involving a very similar fact pattern uh, when a, uh, you know, a either a Chinese national or or even a naturalized uh, um, uh, Chinese American citizen uh, left a U.S. company and tried to join a uh, Chinese company. Um, their former employee would allege them uh, was uh, stealing the trade secrets and trying to. Uh, take that to their next uh, employer. So uh, on that fact pattern, um, do you guys have any uh, you know, best practice advices to uh, companies who are looking to uh, hire from a competitor? Which is natural. I mean, you do want trained uh, employees with the skill sets that you want. But, um, but there are uh, precautions you need to take and procedure you have to follow do that properly. Sure, sure. I mean, I think when you bring, you, you often have exit interviews when people are leaving a company. You can have an entrance interview. You're not to bring anyone's trade secrets here. If you have a question about it, if it's a trade secret, we can help you go through that. We want you signing an agreement that you will not use people's trade secrets. We also want you signing an agreement that if you leave us in the future, you're not going to take our trade secrets. And if you do, there are liquidated damages and all sorts of things that scare you. You mm -hmm. probably don't understand what we're talking about. but in this agreement, but um, you you want those optics, I think, I mean, you want them to be real, but if you ever get in front of a jury, you want to be able to show them, here are the precautions we took, here are this, the training we took for avoiding bringing trade secrets and for teaching them what our trade secrets were as part of the protecting this information which you claim is a trade secret. And, and dovetailing with that, do as much as you can to document your independent development of the technology, either through you know, your own, either through a reverse engineering of what's publicly available or through your own independent 
uh, intellectual property. Do as much to document that you created this product independent of, that it's not the trade secret or a derivative of the trade secret. My experience. I think you, need, you still need. Yeah, experience. not my experience. Yeah, I hate I mean, to admit it. Kind of they're more important than we are. <laughs> yeah, depending. Yeah. Depending on the technology involved. Yeah. Right. Uh, whether. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean. And, and when it's trade secrets, well, well, trade secret could be like a customer list. So in that case, right. you probably don't need exactly. a, a, a technical expert. Exactly. But if you're, we're talking about computer, I mean, computer codes. Um, other documents, then uh, it's likely you also need to rely on a technical expert. Or a manufacturing process, same right. thing. Yeah, yeah. Right, I think it does. I mean, I think you, you know, there's always forum shopping. Um, I think you know, it got to the point where most of the states, I believe, were still following some version of the Uniform Trade Secret Act. So it wasn't really so much the substantive law as, as just the other factors and characteristics of the jurisdiction that would warrant forum shopping. You know what I'm saying? You agree, Steve? I think it's more the, I do, but the nature of the forum than it is the underlying substantive law. That's right. Like one forum where someone might have gone in and said, but Your Honor, this is uniform commercial code. It's right behind you. He said, oh, I never pay attention to that and ruled <laughs> on something totally wrong. So you may find that somewhere. Yeah. Um, so just on the hiring from a competitor uh, fact pattern, I think one, one thing substantively different uh, among states is the so-called inevitable disclosure doctrine. Right. Right. Um, some states, like in Illinois, does recognize it. Basically, it says um, if you hire from a substantially similar competitor with substantially similar technology, and uh, you hire that person to do what he was trained to do uh, at that previous company, then um, disclosure of uh, trade secret is inevitable. So in that case, you do have a trade secret misappropriation sure. problem right there. But um, some some important uh, uh, states. When I say important, means you know there are more high-tech companies, um, like California, um, expressly rejects that doctrine. So um, just because you hire from a competitor doesn't subject to you to uh, uh, trade secret misappropriation liability. But of course, um, you still need to take the precautions that uh, Jay and uh, Steve advised uh, to reduce. The reduce the vicarious liability that you might be subject to because you didn't um, uh, you didn't educate your employee well enough uh, to pick up on their individual uh, misconducts. Yeah. And I think you're going to see more trade secret cases because trade secrets can be kept secret, obviously. Uh, patents, um, 
there are places where people look at patents as a recipe. So I've got the recipe, I can bake the cake now. But if you deal with trade secrets, they, they can't do that. So they can't, there's no published trade secret, otherwise it's not a trade secret. So you're gonna see more and more people who've had their, their IPs taken by people who just followed the patent, um, and they're gonna make them, move them in-house and make them trade secrets. Um, so, I mean, not the same thing, of course, but they're gonna opt to put their IP in the form of trade secrets. Right, right. So from an employee's point of view, wouldn't that be uh, harder for them to move about once a lot of it becomes trade secret? Because it's just their knowledge, the exciting fact that they will get that Well, I think that's why California doesn't follow this, because they change jobs every week out there. Um, <laughs> so, so I, I, I mean, no, I, I, it could make it harder in some places, but yeah. if you have the right precautions in place, I mean, oftentimes people want someone because they're skilled at doing something. Right. Um, and they just don't have company in California. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's right. right, yeah. So it's I, relatively friendly. Uh, and I think that's maybe... Part of the reason that uh, a lot of Chinese companies nowadays build their second, uh, <coughs> no, the U.S. headquarter in California, um, to take advantage of that. That. Inevitable disclosure states? I don't know the list. Do you? I, I mean, the one I knew about is uh, Illinois, and I know there, there are just a few others, um, but not not a lot. So I don't know if it's a red uh, as opposed to blue thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, <laughs> uh, I think, uh, again, uh, states with more high-tech companies have carefully considered that issue. They, they don't want to uh, just destroy, a comp, you know, destroy competition uh, by or doing that. Or employee mobility. Right. Yeah. Right. I have a more general question, not necessarily in any field, but if you have a Chinese client, uh, do you, what, 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 what are your experiences with them? Have you dealt with them different with when it's a Chinese company and one of the parties, either a PTAB or ITC, mm -hmm. versus You mean like insist on ever bring money in a Hong Kong bank? <laughs> <laughs> we would never do that. Um, Just generally, yeah. Any, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm much more careful, frankly. Yeah. Um, uh, I do ask for a retainer sometimes. Um, and I wanted a Hong Kong bank, not, not in Shanghai. Maybe not in Hong Kong anymore, but um, uh, I'm more careful because I, I could stay home and work for free. I don't have to. Uh, so I'm more careful. I'm um, I'm more careful about the integrity of processes. Uh, I represented a company a few years ago, and the, the very same document is here, and the document is here, but the numbers here are much higher. And I said to the company, well, "How can this be?" Well, the numbers we got back from the testing company weren't high enough, so we just changed them. <laughs> so you know, 
American companies did the same thing. I mean, in, when we were rising, we did the same thing. The Brits came over here and sued us for outright infringement, and, and they were, their cases were thrown out. So we can now be very smug about all this, but I'm much more careful, frankly, because uh, if I don't get paid, my partners have some very uncomfortable questions for me. And I, picking up on that, I'm more careful in a different way, I would say, which is you do want to take the discovery issues off the table. So first you have to basically really, depends upon the level of sophistication of the company, whether they dealt with U.S. litigation before, right? Because in discovery, you don't have that in China, right? So it, you search, the first goal is to make sure they understand the process, what their obligations are, and what the consequences are for having you know, two versions of a document. Because what you really want is to be able to take all of those issues off the table for the other side as early as possible, to be as squeaky clean as possible with all of your discovery stuff because they're going to try to make that into a circus if they can. And they're going to try to play off of whatever impressions juries or judges or whoever has about Chinese companies. And so the most important thing to me is always go in, educate them, make them understand this is the way the game is played. You kind of have no choice. And we're going to come out on top by playing it the right way and not giving the other side ammunition to try to take the somebody's eyes off the real merits of the case by trying to make all sorts of discovery allegations and stuff against the company and to play into these images and all that sort of thing. So that's my biggest goal early on in any case with a Chinese company. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, my, my experience is actually, um, you know, I, I do a lot of work with uh, companies from Asia and I find the, the Chinese and the Taiwanese companies to be more engaged in the technology than the U.S. companies. So, um, you know, so when I go into a PTAB proceeding, and again, Wayne can back me up on this because we worked together on, on some of these matters uh, in our prior lives, uh, you know, it's actually kind of more fun for me because the, the Chinese companies and the Taiwanese companies, um, they, you know, come, they, they input in, you know, every detail, they get involved in the technology. Um, so on one hand, it's a little frustrating because, you know, they're checking every word. But on the other hand, they're providing good insights into their business model and, um, you know, their engineers are looking at things and giving you perspectives that you may not understand. So it is, an, you know, an interesting uh, difference I see from U.S. companies who a lot of times just kind of throw it over the fence to me and say, you go run with it, don't bother me where most of my Asian clients want to be involved uh, in every single uh, aspect and make sure everything is as tight as it can be. And, and picking up on that too, you also want to make sure they understand the, I, the concepts of privilege so that they make sure that a U.S. attorney is involved mm -hmm. in those efforts right. so that you can protect, you know, because okay. sometimes <coughs> the engineers will just go off on their own yeah, and start yeah, doing yeah. things and creating documents and stuff. Um, so you, you also want to make sure that they right. understand yeah, the way the U.S. system works and make sure that it's at the direction of the U.S. Um, right. barred attorney, et cetera, to protect it. Okay. So I think we're like uh, 40 minutes. Just um, <laughs> 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 wow. Okay. So with that, um, I again want to thank you, uh, my panelists. Um, I think that was a wonderful discussion. We co covered a lot of uh, broad topics. And um, if you want to continue the discussions, feel free to catch any of us. Um, and so uh, we, we have a, a reception here. Uh, feel free to take, uh, take any food. Um, and uh, we, can, we can mingle in this area or 
in the we have a game room uh, which has uh, beers <laughs> <laughs> and a better view. So feel free to go there as well. Um, we have the basically have the whole floor uh, to to us uh, today. So again, welcome uh, and, and thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>